Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Amen. Now, last week we were talking about our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here that in verse 10, the author of the book of Hebrews said it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Namely, here we see that even though the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God without any sin, yet in his humanity, he needed to grow in the perfection of his humanity. He needed not that he was deficient in in any way by way of sin, but that in order that he could be our high priest, who would die as a substitute for us on the cross, it was necessary that he be tempted at all points, like us, yet without any sin, that he could die by taking our sins to himself and thereby also having a righteousness that he could truly give to you. Now, as the author here is emphasizing this union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the quotations there in verse 12. I proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst. I emphasize my brethren there. The the idea of Jesus identifying with his people in that quote. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children. Notice there again, the, the union between Christ and the children of God. I am the children whom God has given me. Now, this union here is now theologically applied. What we're going to talk about are a couple applications that are of great benefit to us as a church based on our union with Christ that has already been established from last week. Is everybody with me? So I'm going to give you two points here this morning. And both of these points, if you will, are kind of an application of that union that the believer shares with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one is this. It was necessary that Christ become incarnate to destroy the devil's work. That is, the incarnation was necessary, to put it another way, for, in order for Christ to kill death. The incarnation was necessary and thus thereby united to him in that humanity in order for Christ to deal with the most fundamental problem that we have, namely death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. 
So that's going to be point number one, that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh to destroy the work of the devil. Number two, we're going to see that it was necessary for Jesus to be united to us in order that he would become a sympathetic high priest for us. And so we'll talk about the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, secondly, on our behalf and what that means for us. But let's look together here uh, at the first few verses, verses 14 uh, through 16 is where I'm deriving my first point, and then 17 and 18 will be where we derive the second point here. Now the first point begins in verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that's the church, that's the Christian, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and I take flesh and blood, like Calvin says here, signifying all of the humanity, Christ bringing, uh, this is not a reference to uh, the mass, as the Roman Catholics would say here, but we are sharing here in Christ's likeness. Christ, the eternal Son of God, was conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he added to his full divine nature our human nature without any sin. So that Jesus Christ is both God in his divine nature, and he is fully man. He has become a real human being, just like you and me. He has a body, he has a soul, he has uh, emotions, he has a will. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has everything, uh, yet he was set apart in this one instance that he had no sin. He is the second perfect man, the second last Adam. And so Jesus Christ here, the author says, shares in our flesh and blood. We want to maintain the full humanity of Jesus Christ that we preach. Uh, it, is, it is necessary to maintain the humanity of Jesus Christ and not to deify the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's probably the danger that evangelicals might face. We who have a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ in his deity, we need to make sure that we also maintain, though, his real humanity, that we don't deify the humanity. The, the two natures of Christ are not to be mixed. And we need to remember that when we see Jesus going about his ministry here. Now, he himself, the author says in verse 14, look at the second line there, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He took of that same humanity, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So what the first implication of our union with Jesus Christ is this. <clears throat> Jesus is in union with you as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are in union with Christ, a vital, real union. You are in him, and he is in you. His spirit dwells within you. You share this bond. The closest thing we have to it maybe is, is marriage, where upon the vows, the husband and the wife, the two shall become one. Uh, we speak of that. And in the same way, Christ, our husband, has been united to us, has been wedded to us. Now, that has not been consummated in, in the future glorification of ourselves and the new heavens and the new earth, but nevertheless, there is this vital bond 
between the church and his people, excuse me, Christ and his people, the church and Christ, our head. He's the head, we are the body. He's the husband, we are the wife. And we share this vital union with him through faith in him. By the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that same spirit dwells within me. And he causes you, this is why you sometimes will feel the presence of God and you'll say, Abba, Father. This is, this is why you cry out in prayer. This is why sometimes you feel like I need to pray. I need to stop what I'm doing and I need to give myself to prayer. I, I have this sense of union and communion with the Lord experientially as well. Now, even when you don't have that feeling, you're still in union with Christ. You've got to remember that. But I'm trying to show you, though, that sometimes, just like a father will walk with his little child, his little son, in the park... Uh, Ferguson said that then sometimes the father will rush down and swoop him up and squeeze him and throw him up in the air and catch him and then put him back down. And that the father will do that uh, with us. We have this union with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But now notice here that the author of Hebrews is emphasizing this particular point about the union. This is the implication. And that it is necessary for Jesus to become a man in order that Jesus, as the God-man, could kill death. What, what is it that happened that was so awful? It is that the first Adam plunged us into sin and ruin and misery by rebelling against God. And so we were, ever since, we were conceived in sin. And we've come forth speaking lies, says the prophet. We, we have fallen from God. And we, that communion is broken by nature. And so God is restoring that communion with man through the second perfect man, Jesus Christ. Notice here that it says that he might render powerless him, the devil, who had the power of death. So the, the work of Jesus Christ destroys the work that the devil did in the garden in Genesis the devil tempted our first parents to sin and rebel against God. Christ is destroying that work of the devil. We, because of being natural children of Adam and Eve, we, we are enslaved by nature to sin. And, and, and notice here in verse 15, that we might be free and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The author of Hebrew is showing us that Christ, it was necessary for Christ to become a man in order that man could be free from the bondage to sin and the bondage to death. Sin has brought about a terrible consequence of physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Physical death and that Everybody must die should the Lord tarry. As one commentator put it that I read, he said, from the very beginning of birth, the baby is born to die. That what we often refer to as life is really um, death row. It's that the sentence just hasn't been fully executed yet. 
So there's physical death, there's spiritual death, there's that separation and alienation spiritually from God. There's that alienation from one another. Loss of communion, man with man. Now man hates man. As man also hates God, so men hate each other. And then there's eternal death. That after the body dies, the soul that is not reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ is left under the judgment of God. There is this fearful judgment of the Holy One who can abide no sin in His presence. And because He is holy and because He is just, He must see to it that that sin outside of Christ is fully punished within the sinner. And so the sinner is condemned. And, and what the author is saying here as you read on from verse 15 is there's even the unbeliever many times has an innate sense of this in their conscience because they're made in the image of God and they know that death is unnatural. You know, one time I was having dinner uh, with my parents and some friends of my parents who lived in a state up in the Northeast. And um, one time, I don't know how we got on the subject, but the statement was made how death was natural by this friend of my parents. And I, I tried to actually make the case that death is actually unnatural. And he said, oh, no, no, it, it's actually natural. If you look at all of, of, of the world, you see it. And he was arguing from the ubiquity of of death. We see it in nature, and, and we see it in ourselves, in humanity, and therefore it was, it was quite natural. I wasn't trying to make a natural argument, but a moral argument, that, that, that uh, it wasn't supposed to be that way. Um, yes, it may seem natural in the sense that it is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But morally, it's very unnatural. We were, we were created with an eternal soul that can never die, and therefore death is in every way unnatural. And this is why nobody wants to die. There is an aversion. Uh, there is an intrepidation within us, even for the Christian. There is a, an intrepidation. Death is viewed as an enemy. Death is, 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 it is unnatural even for the believer to have their soul separated from their body. Even though you're going to heaven, your soul will be in heaven when you die. But still, that is still an unnatural state. It's what theologically we call the intermediate state. It's that condition in which believers find themselves after death, that their soul is in the presence of God, but their body is in the cemetery. And, and unfortunately, all too often, you've heard me say this, that we don't talk about the resurrection at, at funerals like we should. Uh, you're often left with the impression that, well, that's just the way it ends. No. <laughs> we are in union with Jesus Christ who bodily was raised from the dead, and therefore we too must be raised with him. Though that resurrection for us is delayed historically in time, but but. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? That Christ is the first fruit of your resurrection. You will be raised from the dead, and it's guaranteed because why? Christ's own resurrection is the earnest. It's the down payment on the house. The house is guaranteed by the down payment. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the earnest, that's the down payment of our future glorified resurrection ourselves. 
So it, it was necessary for Christ to do this. And in order for him to do this, it was necessary for him to become a man. That out of the love of God for his people, the Father and the Son in a covenant of redemption agreed that the Son should come into the world, that the Son should enter into the creation, that the Son should clothe himself in our humanity yet without any sin so that he could substitute himself in life, death, and resurrection for us to destroy the work of the evil one, to undo what was done through the sin of the first Adam. Now, you don't have to turn there, but sometime if you want to pursue this subject further, you can look at Westminster Larger Catechism question number 85. Because the catechism anticipates something uh, that we find here in our text and that is raised in our minds sometimes. And that is, why then, if we are in union with Jesus Christ, who himself was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, why is it necessary then that we, we die? That is, if my sins are forgiven and I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me and I am justified in the sight of God by that imputed work, why then must we undergo death? Why, 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 does, why are we not saved even from physical death? Well, the larger catechism gives four responses to this. It says, first of all, you will be delivered from physical death on the last day, as we just saw. Because of Christ's resurrection, you too will be raised. But secondly, if you're not satisfied with that answer alone, that though the believer dies, the, the resurrection of Christ and our union with Jesus Christ does take the sting out of the death. And it does take the, the curse and mitigates it. In that death then becomes our entrance into glory. Not saying death is a friend. Death is still an enemy. But nevertheless, we can say with Paul, hopefully on our deathbed, as we realize that hospice is here and we're not getting out of our situation. We can say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is thy sting? Thirdly, the Westminster Divines say in the larger catechism, question 85, that in death we are thereby freed from all sin and misery. That we are translated into the world of glory upon death. And we too will be perfected. The, one of the greatest things about going to glory is that you no longer will have to battle yourself. You no longer will have this war being waged between the spirit and your sin and your corruption. The Spirit will have fully sanctified you and glorified you. You no longer <coughs> also will live in a world of sin and misery. But you will be freed from that forever. And then number four, you will have a deeper and fuller communion with Christ upon death. That, that communion which we presently enjoy is only a foretaste. We see darkly Yet now, dimly now, but we shall see fully then. We shall see the glory of God in the glory of Jesus Christ. And we will have a deeper, sweeter, fuller communion with God in glory. 
we will be better receptacles of His glory because we ourselves will have been completely sanctified. You know, when God gives you grace, sometimes you don't take all the grace in that you could receive from God because you're, you're just a nasty little sinner, even as a Christian. And so some of it just, you, 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 don't, you don't imbibe in as deeply as you could. And there's a resistance to it. But when God has glorified you, then you, you are a better receptacle for his glory. And so that communion with God will be all the more full. Let me say by way of application here, first of all, let us appreciate together when we come to the table in a bit, the body and the blood of the Lord. Now I said that I didn't think it was speaking directly, primarily to the table. But nevertheless, when we come to the table, we are doing what? We are reflecting in part on the humanity of Jesus Christ for us. And that we are in union with Jesus Christ by faith. His body and his blood were spilled for you. So as you take the bread in your hand today, and as you take the cup in your hand, one of the things I want you to think about is your union with Christ. Even as that bread is going to become a part of your body, and even as that drink is naturally going to become a part of your body, your cells are going to derive some benefit from that physical bread and that physical fruit of the vine, that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ dwells within us, and you receive grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. Also, I want us also, secondly, to keep in mind the death of death. John Owen wrote a great book, didn't he, on this subject, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That death has been mortally wounded, if I can put it that way. Death is dying. Uh, in, in, in some ways it has been definitively killed. In some ways it still lingers, the now and the not yet. But that Christ has accomplished on the cross not just the way to life, but it is life itself. The, the death of Jesus Christ is the death of our death. And we should view it as such. Jesus Christ, when we think of Jesus on the cross, we should think of Jesus' death and killing death for me on the cross. Notice here in verse 15, Another benefit we have is a very practical benefit. And then it, it gives us humble courage. Look at verse 15. And that through Jesus Christ, he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Many of us saw this, didn't we, during the pandemic. There, there are some, I'm told, who still have become so habitually uh, Well, let me say this. Some have not gotten out from the pandemic. That is, the, 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 the pandemic may have receded, but the fear that it engendered in, in many has not. And so some continue. And here the author is, is saying here, we have been freed. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to be reckless with our lives. Uh, we, we are to exercise wisdom. Uh, we, we should 
be faithful stewards of the body that God has given us, but that uh, we are, nevertheless, not to be enslaved to fear and subject to fear. Now, also, I want to make one more point. It's one that maybe would never have crossed a lot of people's minds, but maybe it crossed a few, and so let me deal with it here. And that is, what is the nature of the atonement that we're speaking of here? Over the centuries, the church has had different theories as to the atonement. My view, the view of your denomination, is that Christ um, underwent a penal substitution for us. That Jesus Christ, by his righteous life, took the place of sinners and died in that place so that the punishment given to Christ could satisfy divine justice. That is, that Christ underwent death in order to satisfy the justice of the Father. Now, the reason I emphasize that is you'll note at the end of verse 17, it says here that the death of Christ was to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a theological word that means to satisfy wrath. To propitiate means that one is offended, rightly so. And that Christ's death satisfies the demands of justice and the vindication of justice that is owed to the Father. Now I say that because some might think, and if you watch television, um, you may hear TV evangelists giving a different theory of the atonement. Um, and and they, they think that, it, that the atonement was offered to the devil. Notice here, and they may use verse 14 as an example, that, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those from fear of death who were subject to slavery. And they, they would say, oh, well, you see the... And, now, and I want you to understand, boys and girls, I'm not, I'm not saying this is the view, but I'm just trying to explain. Some people think that the payment was to the devil, and it's not, okay? And so if you watch Kenneth Hagin on TV or some of those guys, uh, you might hear that theory. And that, I don't think, is, is the best theory uh, on the atonement. Um, it was a popular theory from the 4th through the 11th century in the church, um, but it lost favor later. Anselm had the satisfactory view of the atonement. And then I think Calvin and Luther really even developed it better and got it right with the penal substitution. That's a lot that we can discuss this later, and then I don't want to get over my own skis here and talk beyond my own understanding. But just to help you understand that this payment here um, when it talks about rendering powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, the payment of the atonement of Christ is not to the devil. Okay? It is to the Father to break the enslavement of the devil. And just so that we're clear on that, because there are TV preachers who are, are going to offer a different theory of the atonement for you, and I don't want you to be confused. But let's move on here. <clears throat> let's talk about our union with Christ, secondly, uh, not only to destroy death, in the death of death and the death of Christ, but it was necessary for Christ to become a man in order, secondly, to become a sympathetic high priest for us. Uh, Jesus had to become a sympathetic high priest. Notice here in verse 16, the author of Hebrews says, for assuredly he does not give help to angels. As one commentator put it this way, um, 
when the angels sinned, God just left them in that. Like a tree, they said, that has fallen. There it lies. But not so with humanity. That is, that God has saved uh, those who are his people from humanity. But that was not afforded to any of the fallen angels. All angels who rebelled against the Lord in the, in the beginning are lost forever. The difference, though, for us is that while humanity was also plunged into that rebellion and ruin against God, God in his mercy was willing to save man. But the way that that had to be done was by becoming a man. An angel could never, an unfallen angel could never have saved you and me because of constitutional issues. An angel is a disembodied spirit. It is not a man. It can take the shape of a man, a form of a man. It can speak in the language of a man. But it is not a man, okay? An, an angel is a, 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 a holy creature that is to worship God and to serve God's elect. So if man is therefore to be saved, it had to be through man. That is why we have the incarnation. That is why it is necessary that God come in the image of man, that he become man. And so when Jesus Christ comes into this world, he's not taking away any of his deity. There's not one ounce of divinity that's less by him becoming a baby. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but <clears throat> he adds to all of his full deity, a complete humanity. He is both God and man. And so we see here in uh, verse 16, for surely he does not give help to angels. The Son does not substitute himself for angelic creatures. But he what? He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. He gives help or salvation to those who are God's people. Why the descendant of Abraham? Well, because God made a covenant with Abraham that he and his descendants would be his people and that he would be their God. Now, in Jesus Christ, we know that this verse here is not speaking just about those who biologically and genetically are related to Abraham, but as the book of Galatians says, that any person whether they be a Jew or a Gentile, any person who believes in the Son, who believes in the God-man, that person becomes a child of Abraham and Sarah. By faith, you become spiritual children of Abraham and Sarah, even if you cannot trace your lineage to them genetically. Uh, the covenant is not a biological covenant, uh, it is a spiritual covenant, so that even those who were genetically and biologically related to Abraham and Sarah weren't necessarily saved unless they what? Exercise faith. And you read about this in Romans 9, and that's why Paul makes this argument. You know, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Both of them are descendants of Abraham and Sarah, but what? It is the one who believes who is saved, who is truly the spiritual heir of Abraham. And so you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are engrafted into the tree of Israel. 
into the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are among the people from the north, the south, and the east, and the west that will sit down at the table of the patriarchs in the day of glory here. So we see here that it was necessary for Christ to become a man, substitute himself for us, so that he could give help to us who believe in him, that we could become children of Abraham and Sarah. Now look at verse 17 here. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So you'll, you note here the logic of the author. He says, therefore, that is speaking about the union that Christ has with his people through the incarnation. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. And that all things doesn't mean sin included, but it means all things in his humanity. That Christ had to understand what it's like in every way to be tempted. Because we have to understand, here again, when I warned you about deifying his humanity, here's where many evangelicals who have a very high view of Christ may go astray, and they may believe that Christ was never really, really tempted. Um, I think C.S. Lewis makes a very good case that Christ was more tempted than you'll ever be. See, some people want to say, well, Christ was, doesn't know. He, he, he didn't have a sin nature, and therefore he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted like I'm tempted. And C.S. Lewis's response was, oh, no, just the opposite. He knows all the more what it's like to be tempted because he never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. See, if, if, if temptation comes at you and it's a force that, that you're, you're fighting against, but if you capitulate and give in to the temptation, then you no longer know the strength of the temptation because you succumb to it. And, and you know, C.S. Lewis says it's like going against the wind. You, you only know how strong the wind is by going against it. As soon as you turn around and go with it, then you've lost the sense of, exactly how strong it really is. And so Christ knows more about temptation than we do. Jesus Christ was tempted at every point and yet without sin. Uh, Jesus, therefore, is uh, sympathetic, the scriptures say. Jesus is not a hard man. We've all experienced this. We go through something in life. And who is it that often many times can provide the best comfort for us. It's those who likewise have suffered. It's those who have been there. How many times have we gone through something? I've heard this as a pastor, and I've I've seen it myself in my own life, that, you know, you're going through something, and you think, man, I'm the only person who's ever gone through this, you know, and then out of the woodwork come all these other people. You know, the same thing happened to me. Somebody's going to have a, a, a surgery. And suddenly, three, four people in the congregation say, you know, I had that surgery. It'll be all right. <laughs> and they, you never knew that that many people in the congregation had had the same surgery. Jesus Christ is sympathetic. He comes alongside us and says, look, I've been there. And I've been there and more. And I am here to give grace 
Peter, I'm praying for you. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, but what Jesus says, he says, I, I have prayed for you, Peter. And when you turn, strengthen your brethren. Peter, even when, notice the grace that Jesus gives to Peter. Peter, even when you fail, as I know you will fail in my divine nature, I know you will fail. Nevertheless, when you repent of that failure, strengthen your brethren. And what does Jesus do when he, after the resurrection? For one of the first things he does is he restores Peter, doesn't he? And he uses that same mouth that denied him three times to become the greatest instrument of blessing that history had ever known up to that point when 3,000 people were converted on the day of Pentecost out of that mouth. Because Jesus is sympathetic. Matthew Henry, commentator, 19th century commentator, says that the best Christians are subject to temptations. Temptations, he says, bring distress to our souls. And Matthew Henry goes on, he says, Christ is ready and willing to comfort those in spiritual distress who apply to him. When you feel yourself overwhelmed with temptation or even the guilt of succumbing to temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, ye who are weary, ye who, uh, who are suffering, come unto me and I will give you what? I will give you rest. I am a sympathetic high priest. I am not a hard man. But he is gentle and compassionate, a bruised reed. He will not break a smoldering wick. He will not put out. The high priest also is sympathetic in that he, goes, he has gone into the inner veil and he prays for us. He prays that as we suffer in this world, he is giving us his spirit. He asks of the Father, and the Father always accedes to the request of the Son and gives the spirit to those who are in need. Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ as a sympathetic high priest? You know, maybe you have a view of Jesus from your youth that's austere and... You know, you, you, your, your memories of, of Jesus, your pictures of Jesus are seeing icons and, and he, you know, this very stern figure who's doing, you know, this, you know, and, and, you, and your only way to him is by his mother. You know, you were taught that. You know, some groups give a very distant picture of Jesus to their parishioners. And that's not the picture that the Bible gives. The Bible gives a, a picture of a shepherd who is among the flock, who cares for them, who knows them by name. He's not estranged. He is not a stranger to those who call upon him. Amen.